Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode seven of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast, where in this episode, Chad and I sit down and talk with Dr. Tannis Morgan. Three, two, one. Welcome back, everybody, to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. See, I almost stumbled over those P's again. This is driving me crazy. Why did we pick a name with three P's in it? We should just call it P cubed. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, yeah, but then nobody will buy into it and the podcast will die and we'll be crying in the back corner. Oh, well. Once it takes off, we can do something cool like that. Well, I think it will take off because we've had some pretty cool guests and today is no exception. Definitely not. We've got Tannis Morgan on the line with us. That's right. So Tannis, why don't you take a few minutes to uh, introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. Hi. Um, super happy to be here. Thank you. Um, my name's Tannis Morgan. I'm, um, I have to I have, this doesn't roll off the tongue yet because it's a really new job title for me. I'm the advisor or an advisor at BC campus in the teaching and learning area. And, um, that's a really new role for me. I'm, I think I'm three weeks into it after an almost 10 year gig at um, the Justice Institute of BC, where I was the director for the Center for Teaching, Learning and Innovation. Oh, wow. That is a big jump. What made you make the jump? Um, well, I mean, it, I mean, there's so many reasons, but of course I had a one year secondment with BC campus um, prior to that um, and got the opportunity to finally work with so many people that, you know, in an organization that I'd been wanting to do more with for so long and um, actually had worked with some of the people in other jobs actually prior to going to BC campus. So we are a small world. Um, and also it was just time for a change. It was, um, you know, you, I'd done everything I could do at the JI and, um, it just felt like a really good opportunity to do something else and stretch myself in new ways. And, um, I, I'm, I personally really like change. So it was unusual for me to stay so long at one place, which really, I think speaks to how great my experience was at the JI. Oh, no doubt. I mean, they're amazing. Every time I've been involved with the JI, I've been at a couple conferences and just the way they're just amazing people. They're so fun to hang around. I can't imagine what it'd be like to work with them. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really, um, I mean, it was a really great 10 years. So, um, you know, I'm grateful for it. And, uh, yeah, but of course now I get to do this remote working setup, which really works well right now in the stage of my life and, um, get to do some different things. So, um, you know, it's just new horizons, I suppose. That's cool. Tannis, you have a doctorate degree. Can you tell me what it, what your doctorate is specialized in? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, it's in education and actually it's specifically in um, language education, actually from UBC. And, um, but I focused on mine. I was already working in distance education when I started my PhD. And so I actually intersected quite a bit with distance education and online learning. Um, specifically looking at um, online teaching and international um, online courses. Oh, that's very cool. Is, is, is there a big difference between international online courses versus national ones or domestic ones? Um, well, certainly from a language perspective, yes. Um, and I was looking at teaching presence and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, you, you run into different context issues. Um, I don't know if there's a big difference. It's just a different, um, some different maybe set of considerations that come out in the teaching of online courses. Right, right, right. Cool. That's very cool. And you, where did you get it from? Sorry. 
Um, I was at UBC. UBC. Very cool. Very cool. Now, um, talk to me about critical pedagogy a little bit and, and unpack for me what critical means for you. Oh, okay. Critical pedagogy. Wow. I haven't actually had to ever define that. I, I don't know if I'm a critical pedagogue, but certainly I'm critical. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I think, you know, there's, there's people out there who I think kind of own this space much more than I do. I'm, I'm, I, I sort of come at it from, I guess, my own perspective, which is um, maybe critical pedagogy is really taking a um, a lens to, I guess, what we think is the status quo around pedagogy and just shaking it up a bit um, with whatever lens that might be. I mean, certainly I would think, you know, a feminist lens could certainly be a critical pedagogy lens. But um, I'm struggling here because it's sort of, it's not something like open pedagogy, which actually I've been looking into the definitions of that lately. Once again, um, it's, it's really hard to define, I think. Um, but I'm sure you'll have some podcast guests in the future that will be able to answer that question much better than I can. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, I asked the question because I know that you've done a ton of research and, and you like doing research and, and I'm, I'm, I myself, I'm wading into the, the middle deep end of the pool when it comes to critical pedagogy and, and in my own fledgling little practice of it, I, I look at critical as more of a, more of a, of a, of a holistic approach to, to everything that I do. So meaning it's critical in the sense that it's important and it has to, things have to happen now all the way through to how I, uh, interpret my surroundings and how I interact with agents in those surroundings. Is that, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah. And I think, um, when you take a orientation, like, you know, in my case, you know, a feminist orientation, then of course it gives you something to hang that critique on and look through something differently, I suppose. So I, I think that's the real value in it. I think it's, it's, yeah, it's not critique for critique's sake. It's really just bringing a lens that sort of shapes our understanding a little bit differently. Right. Right. Good. So you, you've, like I said earlier, you've done a ton of research. Um, what's been the most intriguing research for you lately? Oh man. Um, Oh, geez. So the, intriguing in terms of what I've been involved in or, yeah, yeah. um, you know, that's a tough question actually, because I tend to have multiple things going on at any one time and they all are shiny new objects all the time. So, <laughs> um, it's, it's really hard to say, but I, I guess what's coming fresh to mind is I just wrapped up a research project that actually I started um, last February with BC Campus. They supported it 100%. And um, it's just going to be published in Open Praxis in November. So the cycle for that research was actually really short. I've never had that happen before where you start something in February and you actually have it in a journal by November. So wow, um yeah, that's unusual, right? And so, um, but that was really interesting because it was actually a study about instructional designers and open education practices here in BC. Um, and I interviewed instructional designers, but also directors of teaching and learning centers. And one of the really big findings that came out of that, that actually has really um, 
got me thinking so much in ways that I hadn't really considered before is the importance of senior leadership in institutions in um, actually moving along open education initiatives. Mm -hmm. So that was um, quite, you know, so as much as this was just a very small study about instructional designers, it actually led to um, a collaboration that I'm involved with right now with um, KPU and Royal Roads and UBC um, and myself, obviously, um, looking at a, an institu- institutional self-assessment fra- framework for open education practices that looks at about 20 different dimensions of things that you need to have in place to have a successful um, initiative at an institution, transformation initiative. And so we're looking at it with open education practices and collaborating on this framework and and comparing our results with each other. And that's been really interesting as well because we're finding again that leadership policy um that sort of thing is really um they're both gaps and opportunities i guess um when we compare our institutions yeah i find it interesting when we talk about like trying to get people on board with open educational practices or resources and oftentimes because i'm grassroots and i i kind of come from it from the instructor background where I kind of do my thing and it, it kind of grows from there. It comes from a, a bottom up model type of idea, but I, and it's so important to have that top down and to have the policies in the Institute behind you, because there's not much you can do without that. I mean, it affects my one class possibly, but to have it grow and to expand out, I think it's so important to have those Institute policies and, and upper management all on board with that. So it can be a struggle though. Yeah. And I completely agree. And what's interesting is actually, um, Research in that has been done on institutional transformation or blended learning initiatives have actually said this already. They've already said that, you know, what you need to have in place for this to be successful is X. And one of those things are, you know, senior leadership um, driving and supporting it, but also grassroots and diffused leadership and that sort of thing. But it, it's it's something that I guess we... Um, we, we really do seem to like the grassroots narrative in open education, and I think... Um, at some point, you know, there are some lessons learned that, you know, you need more than that. So that's been really interesting to me. Well, that's such a good point. I think because it's such a revolutionary kind of idea that we think revolt starts from the bottom and works its way up. And uh, I think the like you just nailed it. We're saying we need to come from the top down sometimes. It seems to be that way from what I can see right now. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, we certainly have in BC here in BC, we have lots, you know, of of things that we can look at, um, you know, there's, there's several institutions who are well underway and, you know, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's the, it's the value of coming together as institutions also and in talking about these things. So when you, when you look at an institution like KPU and compare them to another institution that is struggling per se with the, the top down approach to making OER, um, a, a broader application to what they're doing, is it really about that? leadership component or are are there more than one um, influence in that system? Yeah, I think what we're finding in ours, um, because we're all at different, well, we're not necessarily at different stages, but we are sort of focusing on different things is that um, there's actually about 21 different factors to look at of which senior leadership is is one Um, and leadership in different, you know, flavors is maybe three or four of these things. So, mm. um, I think it's more, it's what we're seeing so far and it's, it's still very early days is it's more, um, 
about institutional differences, right? I mean, you have a TRU who who has an open mandate versus, you know, I mean, that that's going to define very differently and some things are going to be harder and some things are going to be easier in an institution like that with actually an official mandate of, you know, being open um, versus, you know, an institution where that actually isn't part of the institutional culture and it, you know, maybe doesn't line up with our mandate. I mean, I think it lines up with everybody's mandate eventually, but mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? It's, it's sort yeah. of, um, there's those differences too, but it's still pretty early days for, for that part of the discussion. We're just kind of getting to that. Do, do you think there's a difference, uh, because there's a, a, a West coast flavor to this versus a central or an East coast flavor, or is it just because it's so new to a lot of institutions that they haven't quite put their head around it? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how if I, I can answer that really. Um, but I love the question. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, here in BC, we are our own pond. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I do find it really interesting to compare, um, you know, just, you know, when you go to conferences and these sorts of things, you, you sort of end up kind of comparing and contrasting a little bit with, you know, what, what, what are people talking about? What's top of mind at these different open conferences. So I, I find that interesting. I think there are some, you could sort of maybe pull out some generalities there too. Mm-hmm. Yo, for sure. Do you see a big difference in how open is done in higher ed in North America as opposed to Europe? I, I want to say yes, but of course my exposure to that is really just going to the OER conferences where I've been going for the last three years. And I just, the conversations at the OER conferences are, are, are different. And I think Martin Weller had a great post the other day where, you know, you know, from, from his perspective, it looks like to an outsider that, um, North America is very concerned about open textbooks. Um, so I think it's difficult to, um, without actually being there to have that viewpoint, but certainly, um, you know, there's, there are some, there are some truths in that too. So it would be, I mean, it would be a lovely um, study for somebody actually to do a little bit of a international comparison of that. Yeah. Well, there you go. (laughs) Doors open for you. Oh, there's lots of people who can take that one up. (laughs) Yeah. I often wonder too about kind of like the, everyone wants to see what happens with the big fish when they get into the pond. Right. And so um, it, UBC just committed, I'll call it a boatload of money. I mean, it's probably not for some, but it's, it's certainly is a lot for others um, to the idea of moving into the open space and, and being intentional about what they're doing uh, with their resources and how they're going to develop it and encouraging their faculty to get into that arena. Um, I wonder if there's some, some waiting uh, with other institutions to see what these bigger institutions and bigger by numbers is what I mean, uh, what they're going to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's, I I think the bigger, smaller distinction is really actually quite important in talking about open education initiatives, quite honestly. I mean, having spent 10 years at a small institution, um, in fact, I mean, I started out at UBC and then I went to BCIT. So I just get smaller every time. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I mean, I having had, I mean, I have had that perspective of being at different sized institutions and institutions with different flavors. So I care quite a bit about that 
differentiation piece, like, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what it means to somebody on the ground at a small college versus what it means to somebody at a big institution with a, you know, a large teaching and learning center and, you know, boatloads of money, as you say. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I think the value of the BC sector and, you know, I've been in it long enough to be able to say like, you know, BC campus had a big part in this was to bring us all together. Um, you know, I remember the early days when we, we weren't collaborating and sharing and now it's just a default for us. Like, in fact, I think it's pretty special to BC because we've, we've had, you know, 15 years of this now, I think. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like, um, for us, it doesn't matter if the big institutions, um, have more because we all end up benefiting because we have a sector that actually does value sharing and collaboration. And when I first went to the JI, in fact, one of the very first projects I had was to bring over some of the openly licensed resources that UBC had um, created that I knew about because obviously I hadn't been there too long ago and just bringing them over because we didn't have the resources to recreate them at the JI. Mm. And, but that's exactly how it should work. You yep. know, I mean, that makes total sense because as a sector, we basically all pull from the same pot anyway. So we might as well, you know, share with each other. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's, I think, yeah, I think you're hitting the head right on uh, the nail right on the head there when you say that, a couple things that we're all drawing from the same pot. So why are we not all looking at this the same way? Um, because from a, from a trades training perspective, we certainly receive all of our money from the same pot. And so when one institution takes some of that money and develops resources, why are they not in an open stance with those resources and sharing with other institutions that don't have the manpower, can't release their faculty to, to do stuff. Um, so there's, there's definitely that, that dichotomy there, right? And um, I, I, I do see in some respect uh, from my own experience in vocational training that there is this, we'll just sit and wait and see what the bigger people are gonna do because once they get the ball rolling, then we'll either be able to benefit from it or we'll be able to get on board and, and take, take advantage of the momentum that these bigger institutions can, can create. Yeah, and I think that's that can be a really good approach. I mean, um, again, using a GI example of that was when um, I mean I came there. We had to do we had to make a decision whether to upgrade Blackboard, our learning management system, or move to something else. And at the time, everybody was offloading Blackboard and moving to Moodle. And our approach was, you know, we don't we're, as a small institution, you don't really have the risk. You know, you don't really have the risk tolerance that a larger institution does. So our approach was, you know, we need to just sit back and wait until the honeymoon's over and let everybody tell us what their Moodle experience really is before we actually commit to to doing uh, putting up the resources. So I think there is, you know, there's value in, in that approach as well. So but certainly I, with regards to the whole um, trades pulling from the same pot as well. I mean, the nice thing about BC is we we now have an example of how coming together and sharing more as institutions hasn't harmed any of us to my knowledge. I mean, nobody has, no, none of, no colleges have closed since BC campus came to be and got us collaborating more. And to my knowledge, you know, we haven't lost students as a result of sharing more and being more collaborative. So um, certainly there's, there is, I guess, 
evidence to suggest that, you know, our worst fears do not come true in these scenarios. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's important, right? That's the advantage of the BC experience. There's just so much importance behind the whole idea of the the, uh, conversations that we need to have. And like you said, I think BC is doing it very well where we are collaborating a lot. And it goes back to trying to define open pedagogy or critical pedagogy. In fact, you can almost define it as it's an ongoing conversation that is constantly bringing new things to light, new practices to light, new things. And if we don't share those things then they end up becoming insular and end up can die on the branch. Whereas if we can put them out there, have the conversation, share what's happening with each other, share good and bad and see how people respond to that. I think there's so much value in those conversations. And I think for me, that's one of the exciting parts of being involved in the whole open education is these conversations that do happen and the conferences I've gone to and all the institutions that are talking together as opposed to just trying to hide their own work and and share it with only within their own institutions. Yeah. And I really like how you framed that, like the ongoing conversations. I think that's, that's a really nice way of putting it actually. So uh, I might, I might use that one myself. (laughs) Have at it. Um, I was watching just to get prepared over the summer. You had keynoted at uh, Aperio, I believe it's called. And uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I remember I tweeted about it when I was watching it back. I think it was in June, the end of June, or I think it was at the beginning. But I was watching it at the end, and we you talked a little bit about uh, towards the end of it. You talked about how Amanda Coolidge talked about my fifteen percent or the fifteen percent solutions. And about how we can get overwhelmed, but sometimes we just need to sit back and look at the 15% that we can do. do you, can you take a second just kind of speak to that? Yeah, yeah. So Amanda has been really um, a good influence for me <laughs> in helping me think about um, critique and action. And um, and I think it's really a really good point because when you're heads down in research and you're, you know, your job is to be critical and um researchy, I guess, um, you know, you forget about the, the action part of that. And so I, I, I just found it really helpful. And, um, one of the things that, um, we're quite familiar with here in BC, many of us have taken the liberating structures workshops where, um, one of the liberating structures is to actually just, it's called a 15% solution. So you can kind of just tackle, you can have a, a group discuss their issues and then decide on what 15% they can tackle right away. So that you, you can leave feeling like, okay, there is something's doable here. We, we, you know, maybe not everything, but there is some immediate action that we can take. So, um, that was something that I've started using and thinking about some of these bigger, I guess, problems or, or things that are in your own personal capacity to address and contribute to. So, um, yeah, that's that was sort of what that closing piece was all about, because um, basically, I mean, I spent an hour talking about some dark things about ed tech. <laughs> um, but of course, you don't want to forget your agency and all that. And each of us, you know, regardless of what role we have at our respective institutions, I mean, we can push the things that need to be pushed and um, take small steps. And I think it's so important in the sense that sometimes being that this is all relatively new, and especially for those of us who kind of just jumped in within the past couple of years, it can feel extremely overwhelming and you just don't know where to even think about beginning. 
So that to be able to chunk it like that and say, okay, what's this 15% here? I can do that. I can figure out, you know, I, I've got this big picture, but there's some small steps and quick wins that I can take here. And I think that's so important. I mean, Tim and I were talking about that a few weeks ago in a podcast about how instructors who are getting involved in OER, it doesn't mean that you have to jump in both feet and write your first OER textbook right now and, and embrace it all. It could just be you're using one tiny resource or worksheet or a, a video that's openly licensed and take these small steps, these small wins and kind of build from that. Yeah, that's a, you know, I hadn't even thought of it in, in those terms actually, but that's a really important point too. And, and I would just say too, that somebody's small step is somebody else's big step. Like, you know, for example, one of the easiest things that for me, when I was in the role of a director was to assign budget to things. So, you know, that, I didn't have to do anything other than to enable somebody to do something through a budget process. Um, like for example, you know, having a faculty, giving a faculty member a contract to write an open textbook. That was honestly, it was one of the easiest things I could do, but that's somebody else's really big problem that they can't solve. So I think that's a value too. in thinking about that, you know, sometimes even these small things that we do in our classroom have the biggest impact on learning you know, that little worksheet might actually be more important to a student than the textbook. Oh, definitely. definitely. <laughs> Whether it's open or not. So, so yeah, I think there's that angle too, that it's, it's, it's like small steps can actually have big impact. Yeah, definitely. And to go back to your analogy there, you releasing some money for a budget. I mean, that, yes, it, it goes onto a big project for the person who's building it and that there's some problems and solutions within that. But then there's also humongous value and big gigantic leaps for students who get the, the end product and get to use that. So I think there's a lot of um, optimism in that as well. I mean, it can seem daunting at the same time, but at the, you know, there's such a humongous light at that end of that tunnel that it's something that can be quite exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd agree with that. So Tannis, I know that um, we, I think you and I have had this, I, I should back up. I don't, I'm not sure if I know this for sure or not, but I'll, I'll say that I know it for sure. <laughs> um, I think you and I have had this conversation once before, but I'd, I'd like to hear you talk more about it. <clears throat> Pardon me. And that's the idea of open and what is open and how open should things be? Do you remember having that conversation? Oh, right. Um, probably was it when we were talking about open pedagogy, maybe? Yeah, yeah, I think it was. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about your perspective on that phrase? Because it just like, you know, critical pedagogy, it seems to have this broad, broad brush stroke to it where everybody kind of finds their own bristle and hangs on. Yeah, so I might have been talking because I've been trying to sort through um, definitions <laughs> and definitions aren't something that faculty are going to jump in. You know, I mean, it, it, it's just they're they're confusing and open. So and, and maybe this is what I was talking about, but I, I've, I see open education practices as the big bucket thing, which is really about the actions of doing open and the actions of doing open produce OER. They produce stuff, right? So OER for me is the stuff that is produced as a result of open ed practices. And more and more I'm thinking about open pedagogy as um, the means to something. So rather than describing open pedagogy as a disposable assignment or as um, an opening a course or whatever that might be, which is really the stuff um, and to some extent the practice, 
Um, I'm thinking of it as, you know, what is it a means to? Like, why do we do that? Is it a means to greater collaboration in, in the classroom? Is it a great means to a greater audience that may be beneficial to student learning? I mean, just trying to get more at really um, thinking more deeply about why we're doing what we do and um, in, in the, the realm of pedagogy anyways. Was that what you were referring to, or did I talk yeah. about other things? Yeah, no, I think that was I think that was bang on, and it, it I think it kind of fits with the whole idea of criticalness, if I can label it like that, right? In the sense of asking that deeper question, like why are we doing this, right? And and is open a state of being, or is it an action, or is it somehow a combination of the two? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and I definitely see like there's definitely it's come up before that there are overlaps with um you know, connected learning and critical pedagogy and digital pedagogy or all those different things. And um, so one of the tasks is to sort of go, well, how are these things different from those things? Um, But yeah, I don't really have an answer to that, but I think they're just all related, which is fine. Yeah. Yeah, I think what I do like is I like, I like distinctions and I like drawing lines and making um, I like definitions. I like, I like defining things in a sense because it helps me understand it. It helps me make it, make it clear in my own mind. But like you said earlier, sometimes it's hard to define things and because we can't define them, it's hard to fit them into a box, which we like to do so much. And that's kind of one of the struggles. And I'm not sure if it's even a struggle, but that's one of the things that I'm working through in my own journey into open is. I have all these I have all these things that that I I make distinctions of but I'm finding out that there's actually more and more interrelations between them than there is a delineating line and I'm finding that actually very exciting rather than a hindrance No I was just going to say I mean both of both of you are are faculty you're both instructors so I guess what it comes down to is like, how do you talk to other instructors, other faculty about, you know, what open is and what open pedagogy is like, how do you, you do you give them a definition or how do you talk to them about that? I guess that's my question, you know, cause at the end of the day, that's the, the reason for doing, <laughs> for defining um, in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Go ahead, Chad. No, I was just going to say it's, it's, it's hard to, sometimes we have to be comfortable in the gray, but like Tannis was just saying, sometimes we have to set up the binary systems, especially when we're explaining things to others that, okay, this is exactly what it is. And then as they get more comfortable with it, you know, you start showing that there's a blend there sometimes and it's not so delineated. It's not so, you know, there's the wall where it ends and there's a wall where something else begins. Yeah. And I think if I was to answer your question, Tannis, I'm, I'm probably starting off on a, on a launching pad of, open openness if i want to call it that or open stance is what i've been referring to is really just it's a it's a state of practice right and so for me it's it's a perspective that i use when it comes to everything from developing material all the way to how i interact with students in my class or apprentices in my class or uh, how i inter how i interrelate with different classes that i'm teaching during a term because sometimes i'll teach different uh, night school times of the same content, but I have different classes throughout the week. And so for me, it's, 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 how do I, how do I weave all this material into what I do 
and at the same time making it accessible making it understandable making it applicable for the not only the apprentice but then encouraging my colleagues to look at it this this way as well in the sense that they're not losing their identity by walking into a room called open because mm-hmm. i think because i think that there's that there's an issue of identity when it comes to certain faculty members in vocational training and and what we create and and i wonder if it's because as tradespeople we love to drive by buildings or or sites that we've worked on or or things that we've done and point them out to people and say you see that building over there i did the plumbing system in that building or i did the heating system or i did the electrical system and it's there and it's almost like a monument right it's almost it's it's very tangible uh it's going to last decades hopefully um and it's it's like this this it's not living per se but it's there in your face and you can't escape it and i mean i've done it for so long my family gets sick and tired of me pointing out to them buildings that i've worked in or things that i've done um but, it, <laughs> but it's important to me right and so when when we start talking about going into the open uh i think there's i think there's some trepidation there because people are afraid of losing that tangibility that that almost that um I don't want to call it archive, but there's there's um, there's something there that they can point to and go, I did that, right? And there's there's an identity connection there, and and getting them to understand that when when they create stuff uh, for the for the open stance, there's still an identity there, and they don't lose it, even if somebody else takes it, revises it, or and reuses it or redistributes it uh, however they want to deal with it you still don't lose your identity you're still part of that process you know i think you've actually hit on a really important maybe a research gap which is really about open and tensions between you know instructor or faculty identity actually i mean i would i would read something like that that i think you've um made a really important point there um, I'm write that and certainly down from a trades perspective it's even more interesting mm-hmm. so <laughs> i'm gonna write that down because dr tannis just told me that that would be an excellent <laughs> research question so i'm gonna, I'm gonna write that down and save that for later. <laughs> there we go there we go so um tannis we are creeping up on our time here um and you've offered a ton of great mm-hmm. stuff and we would love to have you back in the future um but i just i like to end with one question and i've I think I've been consistent or we've been consistent in asking this question. What impact on the open space do you want to have? Oh, oh my goodness. What impact do I want to have? Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, it probably would, it changes depending on when you were, you at what stage of my life you would ask me that <laughs> question. Um, I'm currently in a stage where I hope I can help to bring, um, you know, more feminist ed tech perspectives to, um, to the open conversation. And of course, you know, big shout out to the fem ed tech hashtag where, you know, if you're interested in that, you can read, you can really see where ed tech open, um, feminism intersect, you know, in that if you have your tweet deck open and just follow along for a few days. So for me, that's a really exciting space. And, um, more and more, I think it's a, you know, a relevant lens to be looking through at some of these things. So, and certainly social justice perspectives kind of align really well with that. So, 
um, which is really how I got into distance education. I mean, distance education for me is really has a social justice agenda. Mm -hmm. I was always fascinated with open universities. Um, that's really where I began in ed tech was through distance education and access. Um, so in a way, maybe it's kind of just, maybe I haven't really diverged at all. <laughs> I'm still, I'm amazingly consistent. I'm still there. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. Thanks again, Tennis, yeah, for being a part you. of uh, our show. And uh, again, like I said, I hope you'll you'll accept a, an, an invitation to come back in the future. Maybe we'll have a panel and uh, we can uh, bounce the tennis ball back and forth, so to speak. That um, sounds great. And um, congratulations to both of you for doing this wonderful podcast. Thank you. Oh. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. So thanks again, everybody. So you can uh, pick us up on all your uh, awesome podcast platforms. We are on all of them. I th there's a billion of them. Well, billion is probably a lot of number, but there's a lot of them. We're on them. You can do that or you can go to the website, praxispedagogy.com, spelled exactly the way you said it. And uh, you can uh, listen to us there. You can subscribe. Uh, and please, if, you, if you're listening to us on iTunes, give us a rating. Uh, we love the five star because that makes us feel good inside and, and warm and fuzzy and all that good stuff. So um, give us a five star rating. That would be awesome. And because uh, that just gets the word out. And uh, we're really excited about what we're doing and who we're talking to. And not only that, just what it has to offer for all of us kind of making our way through this open space, yeah. whether you've been in it for a long time or whether you've been in it kind of like us for just a short time. So again, thanks for listening and uh, we'll catch you on the other side. Don't